Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hey everyone, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. Recently, I spoke with physician and philosopher of medicine, Hillel Broad, about his 2012 book, Intuition in Medicine, a Philosophical Defense of Clinical Reasoning. Hillel currently works at the Mifne Center in northern Israel, where he researches autism. In this book, which grew out of his PhD thesis, Broad scrutinizes the category of clinical reason, posited in various forms throughout the history of medical thought. He argues that a re-emphasis on the notion of intuition can bridge the gap he identifies between medical and moral reasoning. Rather than setting out to formally define intuition, he focuses on where it crops up in different contexts and debates. The result is a satisfying, well-argued tour through the history of medical thought, from the Hippocratics through the evidence-based medicine movement. Of the many stops on this tour, we find a section analyzing the relationship between theoretical and practical reasoning in the work of Aristotle, chapters addressing the consequences of statistics on medical thinking, and discussions throughout of where and how insights from phenomenology can give ethics a better understanding of the human subject. Importantly, Broad argues that uncertainty is intrinsic to clinical reasoning as a human process, 
And it's a category error, really, to simply say that more data will necessarily produce better decisions. In practice, intuition bridges moral and scientific judgments as they are commingled with human perception. It therefore warrants deeper consideration by both philosophers and physicians. On the author's suggestions in my optimistic reading, intuition seems a topic ripe for lively discussion and collaboration between the two professions. This is certainly a challenging read for the breadth and depth the philosophical approach is discussed, but it invites and caters well to a broad range of interests, philosophy, specifically ethics and phenomenology, medical and bioethics, as well as history and sociology of science. It was really great to hear Hillel explain his thinking more deeply, and I hope our discussion will provide food for thought for those interested. Hi, everyone. This is Mikey McGovern. Uh, I'm speaking today with uh, Hillel Broad. Hillel, welcome to New Books in Medicine. Hi, Mikey. Thank you so much for the opportunity to discuss my book, uh, Intuition in Medicine, with you. Really looking forward to our discussion. Great. All right. So I guess let's get going. Yeah. So I'm just going to, you know, basically uh, kind of walk through the book um, and, well, <laughs> have you walk us through the book, me talking uh, as little as possible. And uh, basically just, you know, try to see what salient points emerge from the discussion. Okay. <laughs> cool. This is uh, <laughs> quite, quite a, a task in a way. I was just uh, reading through the book uh, today just before the meeting and realized what a, what a, what a scope it, uh, what a long trajectory in the book. <laughs> I don't know what it was like for you to, to read it or to, to uh to review it, but um, as the title of the book is, it's a intuition in medicine, a philosophical defense of clinical reasoning, and it's an attempt on my part as uh, having a background as a as a medical doctor, and then um, acquiring the tools of uh, philosophy to provide some kind of philosophical reflection on on clinical reasoning and the processes of of clinical reasoning. And um, intuition was a, a means for me uh, of of um, getting into the heart of what I thought clinical reasoning is all about. Mm-hmm. So, as I as I say in the introduction, that I don't really refer to one specific definition of of clinical reasoning because what I discovered when I was conducting my research was that. Uh, a lot of the confusion that arises around talking about intuition in medicine is that people are actually using different definitions of intuition without acknowledging it. And so it leads to a, lo- a lot of confusion. The main, well, one of the main insights was I had was that there were two broad uses of intuition. One is a philosophical sense of intuition as a sense, as a kind of um, absolute certainty or incorrigible certainty, um, going back all the way to to the beginning of the history of of philosophy and certainly continuing into the modern period. And then intuition, as most people think about it, as a kind of a a common sense, as a a kind of a gut sense, and which is often the way um, it's it's used by by clinicians in terms of relating to clinical reasoning, mm-hmm. and um, part of the exploration of the book was to explore how these two 
very different definitions of intuition are, are interrelate in, in terms of clinical practice. Um, and the scope of the book is, is, is quite large, moving from uh, ancient uh, philosophy and medicine to, to modern-day 20th century, 21st century definitions of medicine and, and, and clinical reasoning. And having a background as a, as a clinician, I found in my own experience in terms of medical ethics and, and um, in terms of philosophy that there was a real problem that I felt was that I needed to address in the sense that um, physicians don't really have the philosophical language to to analyze what it is they actually do. And so a lot of the terrain was was being left to people who didn't really have exposure to or clinical experience. And so in my in my opinion were were presenting in their own way a, a kind of a biased um, understanding of, of, of clinical medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and intuition for me was a way of, of really getting to the heart of what what the clinical reasoning was about. So the different chapters, there's eight, eight different chapters in the book. The first chapter is a, is a general um, overview of, of the concept of intuition in, in medical moral reasoning and where I analyze the debate or attention that played out in the, the development of bioethics in the 1970s and 80s between physicians and philosophers over the scope and nature of, of medical ethics. And what I found really interesting was that how this was paralleled in the attitudes towards intuition in, in medicine and, um, and even the use of, of intuition in, in philosophical arguments. And um, my approach is, which I at the time I thought was somewhat unique, was to look at bioethics through um, firmly in terms of history and philosophy of science. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book is pretty uh, philosophical, quite dense. And uh, You also do maintain that kind of, you know, there's a very strong historical sense that pervades the work that I think um, unifies a lot of what you're saying in a way. And you're right that, I mean, when I was uh, looking for books to uh, interview people on, this one really struck me. Um, because of the way that it united uh, the historical and philosophical sides, the sides of things, because I'm uh, I'm someone who tends to interview historians of medicine, but I wanted to you know bring someone um, into uh, the network who had more of a philosophical inclination. But on that note, also, uh, I think that one of the things that I found was interesting, and I guess this is two uh, it's two questions in this. One is more about your background, but two, I sort of found that the focus on you know, certain guiding texts and trying to historically contextualize them really kind of bears the mark of uh, your PhD program, which was uh, in the Committee on Social Thought or something uh, related to that at the University of Chicago, if I'm correct? Right. It, it was one of the interdisciplinary committees at the University of Chicago. Um, it wasn't the Committee of Social Thought, which is the most famous uh, mm-hmm. interse- interdisciplinary committee, but a committee called uh, Committee for the History of Culture, which at the time was setting up a program in uh, medicine and culture. Okay, I see. And so what led you in the first place from being a physician uh, to head off to the University of Chicago uh, to the PhD in history and culture? (laughs) 
Right, that's that's a great question. Well, I mean, the most the most compelling thing was my own my own curiosity and and desire to to uh, continue my own learning process. As my background was as a coming out, as growing up in South Africa and being trained as 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 a doctor in South Africa, and in in distinction to studying medicine in the United States, where one uh, tr- first of all, you have to do a pre-med program where you get a hopefully some kind of broader grounding, and then and then only then you start medicine. In South Africa, the medical system is modelled on the British system, where one goes into medicine straight after school. And um, well, I've always been interested in the humanities and philosophy, and I was perhaps a little bit naive, but I thought that. <laughs> I thought that my medical education would be, in, at least in part, if not in whole, uh, a humanistic education. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered was that one can, and I think the situation is, is, is still like this today, although it's probably better in medical schools that emphasize uh, hum, hum, a humanities component, for example, narrative, narrative medicine. But what I... Um, what I discovered was that you could you could go through your whole medical training, learning about the the how of disease and the what of disease, but but never really grappling with with the why of disease and the why of 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 medicine. And for me, that was something which I I, I felt I needed to address, but I also needed to address it because training and working in South Africa, which was an incredible experience for a clinician, but was also full of quite traumatic <laughs> experiences mm-hmm. in terms of, of dealing with um, the, the social effects of apartheid on, on people's bodies and the, the culture in the medical school. And what I, what I realized, though, was that what I saw as a certain dehumanism within the medical system wasn't simply a, a result of or a, a result of the, the, the particular South African context, but I thought um, was was part of a deeper crisis within um, within within medicine, which I thought needed to be addressed. Looking at the epistemology of medicine, how medicine constructs its objects and its subjects, and and that really was the, the overarching. Uh, motivation, in a sense, compelling me to understand to undertake this project, mm-hmm. to try and really grapple with what <laughs> what medicine is about and what it could be, and 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 um, again, intuition became a kind of a, a central prism or focus in which to to go into this question, because I thought, for example, I was reading a, a wonderful people like Ed, Ed, Edmund Pellegrino and. And um, Eric Cassell, who were r- real pioneers in terms of medical humanities, but at the same time, in when once I, I became really familiar with their work, I I had the sense that it wasn't sufficient simply to in- incorporate some kind of humanistic training within the medical curriculum, but actually there was something within the epistemology of medicine which itself deserved uh, a fuller critique. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, so those are some of my, you know, some of my background motivations for, 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 uh, for, for writing the book and, and doing the dissertation. And then 
um, I was offered a I was offered a, a kind of a scholarship to do a PhD in this medical humanities program. So that was how I got to Chicago. But there were there were reasons also compelling me to go to the University of Chicago. Um, for example, Professor Leon Cass was was teaching on the Committee of Social Thought and. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested in his work and the, the, the legacy of, of Hans Jonas, mm-hmm. uh, which was a very influential uh, figure for, 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 for Cass and for Castle and for others. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of serves as a strong kind of background figure, I think, in your book quite a bit. Yeah, Hans Jonas was really, really important for my, for my thinking. And, um, and, and he, appears, uh, he appears in the book mm-hmm. <laughs> critiquing... Uh, Kind of issues of brain death and and reflecting on brain death and issues of temporality in medicine and issue of correlation in medicine. Uh, Hans Jonas was, was really important for my for my the development of my thinking. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So we were, we were we were discussing the we we're discussing the first chapter, and I kind of want to dial back a bit to the introduction and the way that you frame the book, just to give our you know our listeners some of a kind of way into the approach you take. And so uh, you kind of, uh, you begin with the classic Aristotelian syllogism, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. And you do this to draw attention to the fact that uh, what mortality consists in often seems to go unquestioned, right? And then you claim that medicine, in a way, uh, has helped philosophy advance beyond these abstracted uh, conceptions of universal reason. And could you maybe develop this a bit more for us? Like, you know, what does medicine actually give philosophy? you know, sort of you going from a medical program uh, to a philosophy uh, Mm -hmm. and history uh, PhD. I I think you're in a unique position to reflect on this. (laughs) Right. Okay. Thanks. This is kind of a great question. Um, You know, one of the, what I kind of detail, I think it's in that first chapter is that if one looks at the, the, the very first development of, of Western medicine from Hippocratic, from Hippocratic medicine, there's a there's a really strong philosophical influence on medicine, and it's it's a debate amongst cla- classicists whether medicine influences philosophy or philosophy influences medicine. But but what's what seems really clear is that once one is talking about Western medicine, one is talking about a certain process of abstraction, um, which it which is ultimately completely reliant on. On, on the philosoph- on philosophy and philosophical reflection, um, and sorry, someone was there. Okay. Um, <laughs> and the this process of abstraction, so it's 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 out, it's completely fundamental for for the development of Western medicine, but at the same time. This process of abstraction means abstracting from um, real fleshy, fleshly humans and the interaction between humans. So there's this process of abstraction, which is on the one hand necessary for the development of, of medicine and necessary for the movement of medicine away from, from magic. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, it's, it's, it then becomes historically associated with a with a process of, of, of dehumanization. So it's, it's a dialectic between what is necessary to found a, a scientific method and questioning what, what, what are the limits of, of that process of scientific abstraction. 
And again, one way of thinking about the book is exploring or fleshing out um, this process. And Aristotle still is, but uh, is a central figure in terms of in terms of this process because of his notion of practical wisdom and his his key insight that different forms of of problems or questions or require different different methods. And so what is a good method for a mathematician is not necessarily a good method for a navigator or for a physician. And 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 this 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 insight is key also in the contemporary attempts to to model clinical reasoning on Aristotelian on an Aristotelian practical wisdom. In terms of what medicine gives philosophy, so Stephen Toulmin, who also was for many years a, a professor at the University of Chicago, he he um, also had this this key insight that what he what he de- um, described as as medicine giving relevance to philosophy. Mm-hmm. He thought that that particularly in terms of in terms of analytic philosophy. Um, so Stephen Toulmin wrote this this classical article um, on. Let me see if I can just find the title: "How Medicine Saved the Life of Ethics," where he he basically argues that casuistry or case-based reasoning restores a relevance to anal- analytic philosophy, which had become very dry and detached detached from reality. Um, incidentally, Stephen Toulmin was also on the uh, was also very involved in the McLean Center for Clinical Ethics, where I was also uh, doing a fellowship at the time while I was at the University of Chicago. And um, and this 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 field of clinical medical ethics was also is also something quite central in terms of reviving case based reasoning. Mm-hmm. But for Tulman, this this uh, the method of casuistry or case based reasoning provided a real opportunity for for medicine to. To redis- or sorry for philosophy to rediscover its its relevance in relation to 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 real life, and um, for a lot of analytic philosophers, uh, medical ethics as a form of applied ethics doesn't really have that much um, seriousness because what's often is considered really serious philosophy is um, again this process of abstraction. Mm-hmm. what is considered to be the most rational. And again, going back to Aristotle, for Aristotle's notion of practical wisdom says, really, really um, disputes that and says, really what's important is, is, is the problem at hand. And if it's a practical problem, you need, a, you need practical wisdom. And, and to try and to, to find um, theoretical answers to practical problems is, is the very least it's a category, a category error. But Mm-hmm. Um, Aristotle implies that it's actually uh, less rational. Um, so yeah, I hope that kind of answers or provides some kind of introduction to to, to your question. But I, you know, I can obviously expand on that. Oh no, absolutely. I think that it's uh, you know similar to how Aristotle suggested that particular approaches are needed for certain kind of kinds of knowledge. I think that you know it's interesting how you know your approach to the concept of intuition is very, very different than other sort of more formalized uh, analytic frameworks would handle it. And your choice specifically not to really define definition, but to kind of see where it crops up in different discourses 
is kind of, you know, uniquely suited to the task at hand. And I congratulate you on that. And it makes it a really fascinating book tying in all these diverse threads of uh, thought about medicine. Mm. Well, thanks very much. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. so we, we already sort of talked a little bit about um, chapter one and sort of the history of intuition as it's used in medical ethics. But in chapter two, you address, um, you know, sort of the rise of moral intuitionism in thinking about medicine, which is kind of you define as a non-naturalistic approach to thinking about morals, where the good isn't taken to be uh, a really attainable thing on the basis of our existence as humans, but is just something mm-hmm. that we uh, create. Um, however, you argue that uh, nonetheless, this approach, while kind of you know denying this sort of naturalizing essential claim uh, to there being one human good, uh, you say that it still neglects uh, temporal and narrative aspects of patients' lives. Would you be willing to expand on that a bit? Right. So the 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 um, right the non-natural approach ignores the temporal aspects. Right. It, it presents a kind of a again a, again if the the. The, the monster I'm fighting in the book to some extent is this process of, of, of abstraction, then you find it in, in, various, in various philosophical approaches. But in, in terms of um, non, non-naturalism, this, the, we're f- f- following on from, from G.E. Moore, this notion that uh, of this absolute dichotomy between between facts and values mm-hmm. and temporality would be a kind of um, as I as I argue at the end of the chapter where where um, a prevalent view in philosophy is that that time has absolutely no moral weight in terms of reasoning about um, the good end for patients is is precisely because be, Coming out of this notion that that there's no relationship between between is and ought, and between facts and values, as as the non-naturalists claim. However, this flies in the face of most most clinicians. Although um, it's changing somewhat as as um, moral values, perhaps of physicians change. But but traditionally, there's a strong sense that temporality or time. Has has is of real importance in terms of in terms of clinical reasoning, and in terms of uh, moral reflection on on what constitutes a, a good action uh, for a patient. Or um, and and yet, in according to the the, the non naturalist perspective, t- temporality would have uh, really nothing to say in terms of in in terms of um, in terms of in terms of moral 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 reasoning, and and for example, in terms of as I write about at the end of the chapter, in terms of proximity to death, for most clinicians, the whether a patient is close to death or not close to death is of is of great importance in in helping to decide what 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 are the treatment options in terms of um, particularly in terms of issues of um, the doctrine of double effect and providing adequate adequate analgesia. So that kind of intuition that physicians have, that proximity to death is is of great moral importance, but but at the same time would would conflate um, facts and values for a lot of abstract philosophers, particularly the non 
naturalists, it, it doesn't have it doesn't have any validity. And yet, if it has validity for clinicians, what I wanted to say was that um, this doesn't mean that um, one should dismiss it because one can't provide the the philosophical grounds in which to prove why it should have value. Rather than simply dismissing it, what I wanted to argue was that was that it itself has um, the fact that physicians have these very strong intuitions means that one has to try and figure out why they have these strong intuitions, and with with without simply dismissing it because it's it's hard to to find um, the foundations, particularly based on a, a particularly a theoretical approach. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes back to to practical wisdom and the need to to ground one's, um, one's evidence and one's arguments in relation to, to concrete reality and to lived experience. Mm-hmm. All right, and it's, it's, it's through that that you kind of return to the next section of the book, which deals with uh, sort of your reading of Aristotle and how it relates to how he's sort of been cast in previous accounts, uh, particularly on the nature of practical wisdom, but also, you know, you trying to you know, flesh out some strand of intuition, which I think that... Um, there's, it's that sense of understanding or noose that you mm. sort of try to look at the relationship between, you know, how does practical wisdom relate actually to some kind of understanding? And so where does your, um, this is kind of a loaded question, but where does your interpretation of Aristotle begin to depart from uh, some of those of your uh, predecessors, uh, such as uh, Pellegrino and Thomas Oakes, mm-hmm. who you talk about quite a bit? Right, so... First of all, I should say I'm a <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of of um, Ed, Edmund Pellegrino and David Tomasma's work. At the same time, I found myself uh, taking a quite a strongly critical position of of um, particularly Pellegrino's uh, conception of practical wisdom, and in particular the the absolute non validity that. Pellegrino gave to the place of of intuition in 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 clinical reasoning. So Pellegrino and Tomasma were certainly pioneers in terms of um, writing about medicine in terms of virtue ethics, mm-hmm. and in, and particularly uh, the central concept in virtue ethics in terms of 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 practical wisdom or phronesis as. Um, the the one virtue that links up the intellectual and the emotional virtues in medicine and provides the the means of thinking both about the means of an action and the end of an action of 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 of, of a clinical action. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found again when I started reading Pellegrino closely was that he really was modeling his notion of medical science on what was really an essentially a 17th century <laughs> notion of science. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that same 17th century notion of science which, which doesn't really have any place for, for intuition out of this, out of this desire to, um, to really found a, a, a um, science on a, on as, as, the foundations of epistemological certainty, but in in relation to medicine, I found that this was a really really a big problem or a, a big a big gap or a, a poria in in Pellegrino's writing. And 
from my own my own reading of Aristotle, first of all, it it became obvious that um, the the relationship of nous to phrenesis um, is not straightforward, and certainly according to to one reading, which which was a reading that um, for obvious reasons I I was attracted to espouse, is to say that that phrenesis itself contains the possibility or or the the, the necessity to, to be founded on, on an intuitive basis, even though it's dealing with what is essentially variable and, and uncertain. Mm-hmm. But Pellegrino, um, basically he associates intuition with art, which in, uh, for Aristotle is translated as techne. And so Pellegrino wants to say, yes, there is a, there, there is a certain techne within within medicine, but he doesn't want to associate um, medicine with anything to do with art, because then, in his mind, it starts being associated with, um, with things like magic and, and what is essentially unscientific. Um, but what, what, I, what I came to the conclusion or realization when I was, was, do, was doing this research is that medicine is, is essentially... Uh, deals with what is uncertain and what is what is variable, and so in order to to ground uh, medicine as on on as most scientific foundations as possible, and on a medicine which is which is dealing describing really what it's dealing with in terms of human variability, then you can't get away from 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 the uncertainty and. And on the one hand, this is what Aristotle was talking about in relation to phrenesis. But on the other hand, um, he also it also really makes sense when you when you when you incorporate uh, intuition within within the conception of of phrenesis. And 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 this is because when one is talking about clinical reasoning, um, it's in my opinion it's very very important to. To acknowledge the role of tacit tacit knowing in, in, in clinical reasoning. So, and and nous for me was the, the, the Aristotelian conception which tied up um, sort of ancient philosophical thinking and and modern thinking about tacit knowing in in medicine. And again, Pellegrino um, he didn't he didn't see this sufficiently or at all in his um, in his own writings on on practical wisdom and practical reasoning in medicine. Mm-hmm. And going back to what you were saying about kind of viewing medicine as akin to 17th century science, one of the other really interesting moves that you make in this book is you sort of compare um, the rise or the modernization of medicine to the rise of another discipline uh, that attempted to deal with uncertainty. You know, both of which you know, very very recent. Uh, you, you looked at statistics. Um, and so I think this is in your fifth chapter. You talked mm-hmm. about the relationship between uh, phrenesis and uh, physiognomy, right? right. And how uh, these sort of both feed into our modern logics and cosmologies of medicine, which are in a way shared with uh, those of early statistics, at least. Right. And again, and also it links up with intuition. So as I write in the introduction, that intuition is very important because it it provides a kind of a moral image of of um, of human beings that is that is really important for uh, for philosophy. 
And it's this, it's this, it's this, this image of the human associated with intuition as a, as a kind of anthropomorphism, which also is, uh, really critiqued in terms of modern, in terms of modern philosophy. But in my mind, this, this, this human image is really important in terms of medicine and medical ethics. And, and it's that image which links up with physiognomy. So it wasn't that I was so much looking to justify physiognomy, which you know, in and of itself is a you know, rather dubious uh, scientific enterprise. But if you look at the history of the development of statistics, you see how f- central physiognomy was for the development of modern statistics. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to show was that central physiognomy was for the development of modern statistics. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to show was that this, this image, this human image, which you find within, first of all, individual physiognomy and then moving to statistical f- physiognomy, is, is still somehow embedded within these supposedly abstract processes of, of statistical inferences and, and correlations. Right. And, what ha- and what happens is that this, once the, this particular statistical technique or methodology has been established, then the processes in which the, the, these methodologies were discovered, which in, in themselves had their own um, concrete context, um, then that gets then that gets forgotten about and 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 erased, and then the the human image, which which is central for the development of these statistical methodologies, particularly the most important one in terms of uh, regression and correlation, then this image kind of gets uh, forgotten about, and and yet when you when you start uh, going against moving against, rubbing against the grain of, of, of um, the, 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 this, this abstraction, you, again, you come back to, to the centrality of the human image. Mm-hmm. And, and as you, you might be able to, to detect, there's, a, there's a, an ethical imperative for me lying at the, at, at, at the heart of this, of this analysis, which is constantly trying to to turn to bring medicine back to to the um, responsibility for the individual or for the the, the the individual other, and once that 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 abstraction happens, which is a, necess- a necessary abstraction for the development of of medical knowledge, but once that abstraction becomes rarefied, then it um, it can become dangerous or harmful. Right. <laughs> Um, and, and what you sort of diagnose as the apex of um, reified abstraction is um, the sort of movement known as evidence-based medicine. And that's what we deal with in the next chapter. And I was wondering if you could expand on how, uh, in particular, you see evidence-based medicine as encroaching uh, upon clinical reason and also uh, problematically you know, like mm-hmm. abstracting away our image of the human being. Okay. So I should just, I should just say that my chapter on, on evidence-based medicine was really was referring to the origins of evidence-based medicine. So mm. I can't really, I'm not really qualified at this point to say what evidence-based medicine is at this moment and how, how because a lot has happened since, um, certainly since my book has been published and, and in terms of the, the, 
the people that I was writing about who, who founded evidence-based medicine. But I would, I would hazard a hunch or guess and say that I would imagine that not, nothing really has changed since, mm-hmm. since, uh, since the book has been published. But I, I would, uh, you know, the, I would love to see if that, if that hunch is true or not. Mm-hmm. But um, because as I, as I kind of write about is that, you know, a lot of the, there's been a huge amount of critiques leveled against uh, evidence-based medicine. And a lot of the critiques stem from, from essentially evidence-based medicine's huge success in, in um, becoming the mainstream of, of, of clinical education. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, evidence-based medicine, at least as it developed in terms of the emphasis on, on the randomized controlled trial, was essentially um, the success of, of evidence-based medicine was achieved at the expense of individual processes of clinical reasoning. And um, as, I, as I detail in the chapter, um, Dave Sackett, who, is, who was the, the main force behind evidence-based medicine, he, he, he learned most of the tools of his trade in terms of clinical epidemiology from a physician at Yale University, Alvin Feinstein, mm-hmm. who really was the, the main person who was promoting the use, the intelligent use of statistics in relation to, uh, to clinical evidence. And yet for Feinstein the use of statistics should never be at the expense of, of the particular individual. And what he, does, what he found and what certainly what I, what I saw was that the success of evidence-based medicine is achieved precisely through sacrificing uh, the individual. So in the face of the critique of, of this kind of critique against evidence-based medicine, proponents of evidence-based medicine proposed what they called like an N of one trial which is basically a trial of just one person. Um, and, but but they d- as far as I could see, they didn't really pr- provide a, a proper methodology in terms of how to apply evidence, statistical evidence, which is essentially achieved at the level of populations to, to the particular individual who, uh, with, which a, a, with whom a particular clinician is interacting. Mm-hmm. So, for example, as I describe at the beginning of the chapter, Sackett uh, does a, does, used to do ward rounds with a big database, computerized database, where he would, um, you know, try and pull off the, you know, the, the, the most uh, applicable randomized trials to evidence from randomized trials to, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the patient in front of him. But that doesn't really get to the to the, the heart of what clinical reasoning is about, which for Feinstein was in terms of more in terms of determining which particular subgroups a patient fitted into. And, um, you know, I've recently been reading um, Erica Sell's latest book on the nature of, of, of clinical medicine, where he details really, really nicely the, the processes of that f- clinicians or expert clinicians should do in terms of dealing with or, or, or reflecting on, on particular patients and the role of, of subjectivity, both in terms of patient subjectivity and in terms of physician subjectivity, in terms of achieving um, the best diagnosis and the best outcomes and the best action. 
And evidence-based medicine, as far as I understand it, really doesn't, doesn't touch this in a significant way. And the important point to stress is that I'm certainly not against the use of statistics in medicine and the use of numbers in medicine, which is absolutely crucial. But again, the question is how to do this intelligently in a way in which the patient isn't the abstraction. The focus of attention isn't the abstraction, but the focus is the, the individual patient. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you, you, have a lot of, uh, you, know, you, you have a lot of interesting reflections, I think, throughout the remainder of the book on sort of you know, this deep relationship between you know, statistics as trying to solve a certain kind of problem at a moment when medicine was also looking to you know, sort of solve its own sort of disciplinary and epistemic problems. Uh, like in chapter seven, you sort of, uh, you compare Francis Galton's statistics with uh, French anatomist Javier Bichat's theory of uh, the correlation between the pathological and the anatomical, which is something that's taken up quite a bit by uh, Georges Canguillem, who seems to be informing that chapter quite a bit. Right. And I think it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to sort of, I think, always lay bare these uh, kind of assumptions and disciplinary foundations. And I think that, you know, if, if anything, the book, uh, rather than being overly critical of these, sort of just reminds us that we need to, you know, consider our uh, epistemological bases. But I wanted to, since we're sort of running out of time, I wanted to uh, head to the conclusion of the book, actually, if that would be all right. And yeah, because sure. you conclude with this sort of, uh, with a plea for phenomenological considerations in medical ethics. And so mm-hmm. phenomenological approaches are, while not really, you know, de rigueur, uh, at least not unheard of in medical anthropology. So what would be the difference between, uh, you know, this kind of anthropological work and uh, the work that you're trying to uh, inspire in medical ethics? Um, is this, you know, simply tantamount to saying that medical ethics should be more anthropological? Mm. Wow, okay. I'm just wondering if, you know, maybe... If you could rephrase the question a little bit, I'll tell you why. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, first of all, there's a tradition of philosophical anthropology, mm-hmm. which is different from um, social anthropology. So Correct, yeah. when you're using anthropology, are you, are you talking, which, which I'm not sure which uh, sense of anthropology you're using. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, my book is a, an exercise in philosophical anthropology, for sure. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you're referring to philosophical anthropology. Um, in yeah, terms I of, say, yeah? I, I would say probably I'm referring to philosophical anthropology. It's just, it's interesting because the, you know, the work is you know, sort of skirting the boundary between medical ethics in you know, the fact that you're kind of, your subject matter is the writings of, uh, medical ethicists, but mm-hmm. it's not specifically cast as kind of a new sort of theoretical approach to, um, medicine that's in a lot of, uh, the way that these, uh, more theoretically motivated anthropological works mm-hmm. go, mm-hmm. they tend to be motivated by you know, certain sorts of practical um, engagements and ethnography. Whereas for you, right. it's this sort of, uh, you're, you're, you're sort of taking a stance as, uh, as someone who's worked as a medical ethicist and as a clinician. And so I think that the stakes right. of this book seem to be a bit different, which is why I wanted to kind of tease uh, apart the two. Right. I mean, it's just the certainness of the style in terms of writing the book and writing the dissertation. And um, certainly my concerns came out of, to some extent or a great extent, out of my own personal experience in terms of as a, as a clinician, and as a, in terms of a clinical ethicist. At the same time, I had this deep sense that 
that it was important to mine the epistemological foundations of a lot of of a lot of the practices and ideas in order to um, in order to, first of all to be able to understand and secondly to try and, and change things as 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 the case may be. Um, but certainly um, the terrain of the book is is mostly theoretical. Um, just a, a word about uh, phenomenology. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, the concluding chapter, as you say, is, re- is really about phenomenology. And um, there were a number of reasons for this. First of all was because <laughs> when I started off uh, initiating my research, I actually thought that I was going to be doing a project in phenomenology. Mm-hmm. And what I found was that the deeper I went into the, the my research, the more I felt I had to do a lot of clearing in terms of in terms of analytic philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there was a, a real phenomenological uh, motivation behind the book in terms of um, in terms of um, certainly in terms of Husserl's conception of of intuition and um, and particularly the work of Emmanuel Levinas in terms of the importance of the ethical imperative of the face and the face-to-face relation in terms of structuring thought and in terms of grounding ethics. And so the, the, my final chapter, I allude to, to, to this, phenomenological, um, this phenomenological background in terms of, the, in terms of this project. Um, and again, this, this, this notion of the human face um, was really important for my own thinking about um, imperative of responsibility in, in clinical uh, in clinical practice, and I thought it important to at least to to give some kind of of um, acknowledgement of of the the importance for me of this this background um, philosophy in terms of in terms of the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that certainly one that can link up in terms of in the discipline of philosophical, philosophical anthropology, in terms of the work of Michel Foucault and Kang Wilhelm, who you mentioned. Yeah, so you know there are parts in the book where there is a, I do mention phenomenology in the, in the second chapter on, on um, moral intuitionism, where I conclude talking about the need for for uh, um, for medical ethics to. And not simply to be about uh, um, the ethics of strangers, and, and I argued that phenomenology provides the tools to to um, to reflect more deeply on on uh, the role of of subjectivity in medicine and in medical ethics. So, so there was an allusion to phenomenology early in the book, but it's really only in the final chapter that that this um, this thread, um, you know, that I make it more explicit. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a really, uh, I think it's a good note to uh, end our discussion of this book on. But before we end our discussion, Hillel, I just wanted to um, ask you, as is customary uh, on the New Books Network, what are you working on now? <laughs> okay. So, well, a number of things. Um, but, you know, my project of, of, uh, of um, thinking and writing about clinical reasoning is... Um, I'm continuing with that. So I'm, I'm writing a number of chapters for books in edited volumes in philosophy of medicine 
mm. on the subject of clinical reasoning and, and intuition and um, and skill and virtuosity. And um, a lot of my present research revolves around uh, the field of of autism, but and and um, but my my key concern, which which I bring to this field, is in terms of relating um, clinical expertise to to theoretical theoretical um, reflection, and to integrate various forms of knowledge between uh, history and philosophy of science, and um, biology and medicine and uh, ethics and philosophy and yeah so those are uh, on the one on the one hand continuing to write about uh, issues of clinical clinical reasoning and epistemology and ethics in medicine and uh, focusing particularly at the moment around the field of uh, autism and um, particularly around early diagnosis and intervention cool well that sounds really really fascinating and I think we all uh, look forward to whatever uh, gets written up on that work. And Halal, I just wanted to take a chance to thank you again for giving us your time today. It's been a really fascinating interview. And uh, you know, I hope that uh, for our listeners out there, you will uh, go out and buy the book. Uh, if you need a primer in uh, some of the philosophical concepts uh, we've discussed, I think the book does do, a good, um, does do good work itself in sort of breaking these down. So I think it's the best way into philosophy sometimes, I find, is through personal motivation, through some kind of problem that you're trying to give voice to and understand. So I think that this book, while very, very academic, is super, super accessible in a way. And uh, you know, I encourage uh, anybody who's listening to this to go out and uh, get the book.